calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is a gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. Hello and a very warm welcome to this episode of Take 15. I'm Lauren Foster, Content Director at CFA Institute, and joining me today to talk about private equity investing for high net worth clients is Dan Meader. Dan is a CFA charter holder and the founder and a managing partner of Trinity Private Equity. He's also the former chair of CFA Institute's Board of Governors. Welcome, Dan. Thank you for joining us today. Lauren, good afternoon. Nice to so, visit. Uh, let's start out by asking you whether you have an overall investment philosophy and how you describe that investment approach to prospective clients. My overall investment philosophy is really very straightforward, which is find good partners, align our interests as investors with their interests as owners and entrepreneurs, and set reasonable goals. Within the context of that, of that plan, Governance is incredibly important in terms of how we make decisions and who's involved in those decisions and transparency to our client base. We want our clients to understand that when we make long-term investments, we want them to understand the path and we want to understand how we do along that path. So what would you say is the single biggest advantage that you have over public investors? And then on the flip side, what would be the single biggest challenge? Well, certainly working in the private space, our greatest advantage is flow of information. We have the opportunity to look for any and all information. We have the opportunity to negotiate documents, transactions, all, all the things that go into making a private equity investment. We can do completely without hindrance, without concern for inside information. You know, we have the opportunity to, to take all the time we need. This is, we are in a business of making long-term investments. And so what I like to remind people of is, is in the old ham and egg breakfast, Lauren, you remember that in the ham and egg breakfast, the chicken is interested, right? But the pig is committed, right? And so when we make private equity investments, we're the pig. So we can't just decide next week or next month, oh, we made a mistake, let's sell that equity. We are making long-term investment decisions. So we want to be a little more deliberate. We certainly want to make sure our due diligence is sound. And that in and of itself gives us many luxuries that the public market does not. So following on from that theme, when you enter into an investment, do you have a predetermined holding period and an exit strategy in mind? First of all, it's very important for us to have an investment thesis, for us to be able to look at a company or a piece of real estate and say to ourselves, you know, why are we valuing it today for the price we're paying? What do we believe the opportunities to grow that value are over time? And what are the metrics that we need to make sure we understand in order to make that investment? You know, Lauren, it's very uh, important to remember that uh, emotional and, and behavioral biases can enter all due diligence process. And if we don't set out a roadmap and say, here's where we're trying to go, and once we get there, then and only then will we consider the possibility for selling or for monetizing. But Every investment we make, we absolutely will have an investment time horizon 
and more importantly, a very specific investment thesis. So let's stick with this due diligence theme a little bit more. And I've got sort of a two-part question. And the first is, how would you describe your due diligence process? And then can you give an example of something you found in due diligence that scared you off a potential investment uh, or perhaps mistakes that you've seen or learned from through that process? Oh, absolutely. So, so let's break the, the due diligence process down a little bit. First of all, we do have what I would call a funnel system. So for every 10 transactions that we might do over the course of a year, we'll look at 200 or 250, right? So there's a lot of pre-screening where what you're looking for is uh, the background of the potential partners, looking for the uh, risk and reward dynamics. Uh, but I would say that, that once we either sign what's called a letter of intent or maybe submit what's called an, uh, an indication of interest, at that point, we have a very uh, structured due diligence process. I would say probably the most important part of a good due diligence process is the opportunity for it to be organic at times. What do I mean by that? Certainly, we have checklists, and it's very easy to say income statement, balance sheet, you know, this and that. But once you see something that either doesn't look right or for whatever reason doesn't seem to fit, then you have to have the confidence to press on that. So specific to your question, what causes deals to fall out? It's very simple. It's misrepresentation. Misrepresentation of backgrounds, misrepresentation of financial statements. Sometimes it's malicious, sometimes it's not. But at the end of the day, if I can't begin to build trust with my future partner, if I can't begin to believe that what I'm seeing and the opportunities that, that it lay in front of us are in fact there, then that's going to cause me to, to back away. You know, we have a silly phrase, Lauren, we use. We have lots of silly phrases at Trinity, but one that I really believe in is that good deals get better and bad deals get worse. What does that mean? That as you pull more of those due diligence threads, you're either going to see more things that, that, that really drive what, what you're looking for, or you're going to see some and it's going to take it in a different direction. Ultimately, though, with those biases that we all have, you must come back to those first basic principles and say, after I've done my due diligence, can we still say the following things about this investment? So there's, there's a real sort of beginning and an ending process that has to be involved. So you go through the due diligence process. Um, what then are your sort of top three criteria when evaluating a potential investment? Oh, absolutely, without exception, it's values. What are the values of our partners? Do we look at business and business decisions? Do we have similar moral compass criterion? If we don't have the opportunity to do business with people that, that, that will address adversity the way we do, that, that believe to handle situations the way we do, then really the opportunity for success diminishes dramatically. I would say, second of all, is structure. One of the things we like in direct private equity investing is we can structure things a little differently. What do I mean by that? Whether it's just leverage, how much capital and what cost of capital, but also in terms of specific concerns. Can we sort of build uh, conditions or, or put things around specific concerns that give us flexibility? I would say last of all is risk adjusted returns. We are going to price our capital based on what we perceive the risks that we know and the risks that we don't know. So again, I would start by saying values, shared values. Second, I would say structure. And third, I would say our ability to price the risks that we see. Okay. In addition to providing capital, do you also take an active operational role in your portfolio companies? And if so, can you give an example of something that's worked really well uh, or perhaps a counterexample? 
Certainly. Well, first of all, there is no such thing as passive private equity investing. So for every transaction that we're involved in at Trinity, we are going to be on the board. Now, in some cases, we have the controlling interests in that particular company, and sometimes uh, we'll have uh, board seats and not necessarily be in control of the board. But I would say this, that governance becomes a very, very important part of a successful investment. It's interesting, you know, with my time at the CFA Institute, I had the opportunity to learn a lot about governance. And in fact, as chairman of the CFA Institute, I had to, I had to conduct business meetings and board meetings uh, with very sophisticated uh, investors worldwide and with very difficult topics. And one of the things you really learn is that there's a big difference between being an investor and being a board member. And what are those differences and how do you make sure you understand that? I would say one other thing while we're on this, Lauren, we have many times our operating partners are also owners. And one of the really challenging uh, and dynamic conversations we have is, hey, when do you have your CEO hat on? When are you talking to me as an operator? And when are you talking to me as an owner? And I would encourage people as they look at private equity investing, especially if they're an investment manager, to remember that there are different hats and different roles that you sometimes have to have making private equity investments. And I think it's important to notice the differences between those roles. I would love to hear a bit more about your experience uh, in the wake of the financial crisis. Um, and in particular, I have a few sort of questions related to that. Um, did you have to adapt your portfolio management process? Did you have to provide additional capital to portfolio companies that were unable to access traditional sources? And did your client communication strategy have to change? So let's take that in inverse order. First of all, our, our communication strategy with our investors does not change. Whether the markets are up or down, certainly we're going to continue to talk about what? Investment strategy, how are we doing on the path that we set, and what external or internal factors are affecting that. So interest rates or macroeconomic environments, all of those things are, are going to be important. But over a three, five, seven-year period, they will ebb and flow. I think to your second point about the financial crisis, what an opportunity to invest. I will tell you this, we should have made twice the number of investments we made back in 08, 09, 10, because the markets were disintermediated. It was a little bit more difficult to, to access capital and values were just fantastic. Oh my gosh, Lauren, I tell my clients all the time, while I want you to continue to invest systemically and I want you to have good private equity exposure, Let's wait for the next crisis because it will be the opportunity of a lifetime. So I am one of those guys. I don't root for, for, for downtimes, but I will tell you, Lauren, that, that if the public markets, for whatever reason, lose their way, it's a huge opportunity for us guys in private equity. So you said before that your client communication stays the same when the market's up or markets are down. But are there any specific challenges uh, associated with private equity investing in terms of communication? You know, I would say this. I think generally uh, people believe in long-term investing, but once they're invested, then they don't. So I would say that probably helping to remind our clients that when we say three years, we mean three years. When we say it's going to take us time to, to build uh, value with, with a strategy or, or with, you know, products or whatever. And I think, I think investors generally, they want to know one of three things, Lauren. They want to know, first of all, you know, in the investment that we've made, were there any negative surprises? So early on, you have what's called the J-curve, something that we talk about in our CFA curriculum. But generally, businesses can be worth less after you buy them because you're investing and you're doing certain things. But at some point, they want to say, hey, where are we relative to where we hoped we would be? 
And so generally, our, our clients, if I had to boil it down, Lauren, it's really what I call green, yellow, red. I made an investment with you, Dan. Is it green? Are we better than we thought? Is it yellow? Are we concerned? Or is it red? Should I just worry about getting my money back? And let me just make that point as well, that within private equity investing, and this is empirically supported, that over time, if you can have less zeros, as opposed to more three or five or seven baggers, that's how you do well in private equity. So I would, I would say that principal protection is paramount in our underwriting and, and how we look at making long-term investments. How can investors with, say, more modest means, and here we're saying probably like 10 million or less, uh, access the private equity uh, asset class and still diversify properly? Well, I would say this. First of all, Lauren, you're in my wheelhouse, right? The, the majority of my clients have portfolios in the range of 500000 to $5 million. So within what we do at Trinity Private Equity Group, we advise our clients to begin somewhere between $100,000 and $500,000 per investment, and we strongly encourage a minimum of three investments. Because what you're pointing out, this concept of diversification, is, is very important. And I want to echo your question by saying that, really, for someone to make one private equity or direct equity investment uh, is, is not wise. I think they should realistically say, how can I get to three or maybe get to five? But having said that, we have three key words we use at Trinity access, invest, and prosper. And that word access means that we work hard to bring institutional quality, direct private equity investment to the high net worth investor, really in sort of that three to $10 million investable environment. Uh, we've been doing it for 17 years. We're excited about it. And, and we believe that, that, that we can do it. And, and we hope that people will continue to look because it is out there. And in closing, what advice would you give to young financial professionals who are interested in direct private equity investment. And then a follow-up to that, are there particular skills and traits that make successful private equity investors? Yeah. Well, first of all, um, I'm a huge believer in the CFA program. Obviously, I am a CFA charter myself, and, and I'm a strong advocate for it. So I think that, that for anyone in the investment management business, regardless of their interest, I think uh, including the CFA, program and including the CFA charter in your in your plan is very important. I would say second of all, intellectual curiosity. You know, I, I turned 55 this year and one of the things I can tell you is I need to work harder at learning more now than I ever have. That the markets change, the world changes. We must stay intellectually curious. I say last of all, you really have to have a moral compass in our business. I think it's so important to have an ethical foundation. Certainly the CFA Institute talks to us and reminds us of that. But I can tell you as a business owner, I can tell you as an entrepreneur, I can tell you as, a, as an investor, that, that having a strong moral foundation and putting the client first is paramount to being successful in our business, whether you're an owner, whether you're an employee, whether you're an investor. Dan, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for your insights. Lauren, thank you. And thank you for watching. Copyright 2017, CFA Institute, all rights reserved. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regards to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.